Welcome to the People vs. Inequality podcast. In a time of crisis and fast change, this podcast is a space to reflect and learn with changemakers on how to tackle inequality. By diving into the choices they make and the approaches they take, but also the obstacles they face and their hopes and dreams in making real change happen. In this fourth season of the People vs. Inequality podcast, we focus on food justice. Whilst the world is trying to grapple with the reality of yet another food price crisis and growing hunger, we speak to those on the front line to find out why the food system keeps failing and what we can do about it. Today, we dive into the role of large multinational companies in the food system and what citizens and campaigners can do to shift power in favor of people and planet. We speak to Nina Holland, who is a researcher and campaigner on food and agriculture at Corporate Europe Observatory. As many citizens and activists are trying to figure out how to challenge the disproportionate power that corporates have in political decision-making and our lives, we are keen to hear from Nina about all the tricks, narratives, and the solution that she sees. My name is Barbara Fass, and I'm very excited for this new series and today's episode of the People vs. Inequality podcast. So please grab a coffee or tea and listen in on the conversation. So welcome, Nina. It's so great to have you on our show, especially as I know you're really, really, really busy and you had a very intense week. Yeah, happy to be here. I'm really excited to speak to you because I think you are one of the long-standing experts and campaigners on an issue that everyone is struggling with immensely. And we're going to be talking about that very soon. Only yesterday you were protesting in front of the commission and the council. Am I right? Yeah. Yesterday there was an, uh, an important event in the European Parliament. It was four years since the special committee, the PEST committee, was active in the European Parliament. That was a, a special investigation by a group of MEPs that investigated how the EU authorizes pesticides and that was following the strong debates on glyphosate four or five years ago which eventually led also to the Monsanto papers being disclosed in the US which then showed how Monsanto was manipulating the science and it gave a lot of illustration of what goes wrong in pesticide approvals around the world and also in the EU. So there was a sort of a, an event to to catch up, like what has happened, what has been done with the recommendations of this committee, and why is not more being done to improve this system. Yeah, great. And I saw the noise was also impactful because, I mean, both on socials and I think also media picked up on this. That's very clear that it's also a long-term effort that's been going on. And as I said, I'm really keen to speak to you because for this series of the People vs. Inequality podcast, we are looking at food justice and how to get from a broken system, broken food and agricultural system, to a more just, sustainable and inclusive food system or systems. You have been working for many, many years on the issue of corporate power within that system. And power and inequalities is exactly what we're looking at in this show and especially also in this series. I'm very curious how you ended up doing what you're doing today. What made you determined to tackle this issue of corporate power, of corporate overreach, especially in our agricultural system, I think, which is where you've been most active. Can you say something about how you started and how you ended up at Corporate Europe Observatory in the roles that you have? I think in my youth, I think I was very impacted by some of the big environmental crises that were happening at that point, like uh, like acid rain and so on. And uh, after some traveling, I decided to do environmental studies. But increasingly, I realized I was mostly interested in the power 
structures behind the decisions that are being made. How do we end up in these mess situations of severe environmental crises that are hurting people and hurting some groups in society much more than others? And some, of course, like corporations directly benefiting from those crises. And so in my studies, I focused very much on that. At the same time, it was the run-up to the big protests in Seattle. There was increasing awareness of the impact of globalization, the big free trade agreements. And so uh, I got involved in protests in that regard, so the alter-globalization movement. And that is basically also where I met the people that then later founded CEO. So we've been connected pretty much from the start. So that was a very rich and, and fruitful environment to be in, where you could, in these protests, you could meet a lot of people with different experiences, people from trade union backgrounds, people from the global south, people working on the environment. So that was hugely informative for me and giving me the opportunity to have this big picture and to realize, and for me, what was really important is to tackle the root causes and to basically know your enemy and that is what has been driving me like the people that are suffering most that needs to be studied they don't need to be studied i think we need to study much more the parts of society that are benefiting from the capitalist system thank you for that and that's really interesting that you also through those encounters you had within the movements that's really shaped your thinking because a very similar thing came up in our conversations with la via campesina and the farmers movements it's such an important element of becoming an activist, I think, who you meet and what are the conversations you have and what you're learning along the way. And you're from the Netherlands, just like me, originally. And I wonder to what extent has that shaped your engagement in these issues as well? And have you always been involved at the different levels, both kind of nationally, European, and also having those global engagements? Or where do you situate yourself in this I was based in the Netherlands at first, but as I said, I, I had the, the privilege to meet a lot of people from the global south and the thinking and urgency from those movements is so was so much more advanced than what we had in, in the Netherlands or in Europe. That really intrigued me. Um, I also visited countries like Argentina, Paraguay that were struggling with the soy plantations, providing Europe with animal feed. I, I spent a lot of time filming there and making materials, trying to make that visible to movements and to people uh, in Europe. And so at first I wasn't so much uh, locally active, but then after a few years I became quite overburdened and felt very powerless. I then started to work locally in organic agriculture, basically just as a worker on the field uh, around Amsterdam and, and really had a, a neat to do local activities and do my local part of the transition, so to say, and also to, to learn about the practice of agriculture. So that was a bit my, my reaction. And since then, I've been trying to combine uh, the two things, to be, to be locally active, as well as to be focused on, on exposing corporate power at the EU and international level, because it can get quite draining and abstract. And um, it's, it's very good to keep a bit of feet on the ground as well. Thank you so much for sharing that. And I think that's also something that we often try to explore in this podcast, you know, what keeps people going and with all the challenges that we face, how do we make sure we not only keep reflecting, but also keep energizing ourselves and, and inspiring. And I've often found that uh, having those local connections is also very important. And it's also practically important as the system, of course, operates at all these levels. I'm really curious, this is a big topic and it can get abstract at times. Can you tell us a little bit more about what is the change, and this is a big question, 
that you're looking for? What would you like to see? And I'm especially thinking, I mean, your focus is very much on the European Union and some of our listeners might know the European Union well and others might not. Well, let me first explain a little bit what, what CEO does. So Corporate Europe Observatory is a lobby watchdog. So we are a research and campaign organization. We are based in Brussels. And that means that we uh, our big ambitious goal is to roll back corporate power from EU and international decision making. And uh, of course, that sounds very megalomanic, but that is the bigger vision. And of course, we're not doing that alone. We, we work and campaign very much uh, with in coalition with other groups and movements and trade unions and so on. It is our goal to, by exposing how corporate power is affecting the decisions that are being made and that have an impact on people's everyday lives and on the to help and give movements and other organizations insights and arguments into their opponents and the people that are trying to twist the arms of decision makers, but also how the EU institutions themselves give privileged access to these corporate lobby groups. And that is necessary to know if you want to win a fight, you need to know what you're up against and how the system works. So that is what we are, that is the role that we play, which I think is a very important, relevant one. And the change that we are seeking, of course, is much more a democratic system, a rollback of the corporate influence over the EU decision making, much more influence from citizens and much more focus on actually trying to act in the public interest. So to take decisions that work for the majority of people for the long term and for a just transition so that the EU moves into a direction where it's less exploiting raw materials, cheap labor, etc. from the rest of the world, turning it into high value products in Europe and just basically uh, making a lot of money out of that. The change is really a fundamental one of the political system. That is similar to many other organizations and, and trade unions. Eh? Like in the end, we are facing a system and institutions with an in ingrained ideology, a neoliberal ideology that uh, always favors the same. And unfortunately, in the current political reality, where we are facing uh, far-right groups even benefiting from the anxieties that people have and somehow being able to mobilize and to, to exploit those fears better than, than progressive parties are doing. And I'm curious if you could share some of the ways in which you see, you know, large corporations influencing the decisions on food and agriculture. What are some of the things that you think are most problematic? It's important to realize that Brussels is the lobbying capital of the world after Washington. It's the second one after Washington. On a daily basis, 20, 25,000 lobbyists working every day. And the majority of those, like 70, 75% an estimate, for the corporate sector. And this is for a reason. And this is a multi-billion euro industry. And companies are investing in that because it is effective. They are acting as colleagues in Brussels. They are not competitors. They, are, they have the same interests and the same goals, same objectives. They coordinate in lobby groups. So every sector has a, a lobby group that coordinates their political strategies. So you have like over a thousand lobby federations that act for a certain sector. So a company like Bayer, Syngenta, they are a member of multiple of these lobby groups. They, of course, have uh, large amounts of resources. They really have all the strategies that have been devised since the 50s, the 60s, in the US, in Europe, 
devised by the tobacco industry, the alcohol industry on how to manipulate science, how to get a head start very early on in the game, trying to twist also the methodologies for safety studies. So there's a huge, huge imbalance. And now what we are seeing with the EU Green Deal, the EU Farm to Fork strategy, which really brought new promises of finally we're going to tackle pesticide use, fertilizer use, going to do something about environmental damage done by the imports that are coming into the EU. Uh, There were so many promises. And we witness how these corporations, in collaboration with the big mainstream farmer lobby, is really managing to directly co-opt and to basically change the narrative, use even fake news, post-truth strategies in order to delay, derail these plans until we are now close to uh, new EU elections. And then there is a real risk that, that these plans will even never materialize. And it is extremely direct co-option because in the field of agriculture, the big farm lobby uh, at the national level is extremely powerful. It's often the same people being at the head of these farm lobbies that are then becoming agriculture ministers. And they usually come from the big conservative parties. And while it is the right-wing parties that have pushed for liberalization uh, in agriculture, abolishing of the quota, so basically exposing farmers in Europe to competition from uh, from abroad. Therefore, economies of scale, intensification, produce more and more. And now we are faced with the environmental consequences. It's again right-wing anti-environmental parties that are mobilizing the farmers to oppose to, to the measures that are now being, being taken. So yeah. it is an extremely perverse and difficult situation where you can totally understand that farmers are up in arms about drastic measures that are now being taken in some countries eh, because of nitrogen, because of this, because of that, simply because the system has been pushed to the edge and it's not the farmer's fault. It's the fault of their lobby groups. It's the fault of their political leaders uh, and the industry behind it that is benefiting from it. I'm struck by your analysis of what's been happening, and I've been involved in some of that work around the EU farm-to-fork strategy. When the war in Ukraine started, there seemed to be a real opportunity for the farmers' lobby and for those that didn't want to have any of these environmental regulations or improvements from an environmental and people-centered perspective to say, now we cannot afford ourselves this type of advancement. And I thought that was very striking and almost kind of a disaster capitalism example, raising Naomi Klein in a different context of companies using those moments of crisis in very strategic ways. Yeah, that's what they will always do. And and they already did it from the start with the COVID crisis. So in 2020, when these proposals were being made, they used the COVID crisis to uh, say, well, now is not the moment to come to burden farmers with these kind of measures mainstream farm lobby groups by far do not always represent really the interests of farmers. So this awareness is really there. And that is where I think we need to get back in touch again and try to to see where the real differences are and where uh, still the, the common goals are in terms of like, how do we move forward? What is a sustainable size of agriculture in Europe and what is needed? What support do farmers need in to get to this just transition? If they need to scale down, for instance, in the number of animals, then they have to be 
somehow compensated because they were pushed into investing in having more animals. Then we really all need to mobilize to make sure that these resources are being made available. Otherwise, they just have all the rights to complain and to protest. In the end, you need broader support, so you need to find each other again in some ways. And at the moment, sort of, you're running several campaigns. Can you say something more about the strategies that you use and what you feel has been particularly effective and working? We work, a lot of our work is based on freedom of information requests. So we continuously ask the EU institutions for all their communication with lobbyists on a certain issue. And that allows us to reconstruct what has happened or what is happening at, uh, at the political level and who influences decisions and who tries to push for what interest. And so in, in a few cases, we've been quite effective in a timely way, bring out, for instance, this false impact study campaign of the pesticide industry and who is behind it. And at that moment, when there was about to be a, a parliament vote on farm to fork strategy, that was, I think, really effective because members of the European Parliament really saw how that this was a flawed campaign and basically voted in favor of mandatory pesticide reduction targets. So I think by exposing this in time and exposing that this was really a pesticide industry lobbying strategy that was really meant to really undermine the farm to fork strategy, that was uh, really effective. And other effective ways have been to, in a broad coalition, to participate in big petitions and mobilizations around for instance, free trade agreements, but also on pesticides. There have been two uh, European citizen initiatives. Uh, we were involved in the, in the first one, uh, ban glyphosate. And following from that, the Commission really made a big change in the way pesticides are approved. And a last example that I could mention is because we have quite a broad cross-cutting view, we do a lot of access requests, so we get a lot of information on, on what is being discussed inside the institutions. One thing we noticed was that a very obscure lobby group called the European Risk Forum was pushing for a so-called innovation principle. And the European Risk Forum is really the big polluters combined, so the fossil fuel industry, the chemical industry, tobacco industry. And they were basically pushing for a new legal principle to combat the precautionary principle. And the precautionary principle is, is of course, ingrained in international law, in EU law, and basically says that if there is suspicion of a big hazard for environment, for society, then you have a legal grounds to basically hold for a moment and allow time to investigate more before you allow a certain product on the market. And this is something that the industry really dislikes. So we were able to mobilize around that and delegitimize that innovation principle and pointing out what the source was of this principle. And I think we've also managed to make it uh, less of a threat and less effective for uh, what, than what the industry had intended. Thanks for sharing those examples. I think it's quite complicated work that you do. It can get quite technical and also legal because you're using the mechanisms that are there. But at the same time, I think you're also critically monitoring whether the systems that we have or the mechanisms that we have as citizens are being undermined or not. I'm wondering, because you mentioned now with this farm to fork strategy, things are particularly challenging. So something might have also changed over the years. What do you see? You've been active for so long in this field. Do you feel we're living in a different time from, let's say, 10 years ago when it comes to how decisions are being made around food and maybe as well as other issues? 
Yes and no. The world is definitely a different place than 10 years ago. I think there's a lot more polarization. There's a new surge of the far right. There is at the same time also a growing awareness around big environmental topics like climate change and also ecosystem decline. I think there is a lot more awareness on corporate power and on the role of lobbying, etc. So I think it has become much easier to communicate around these topics. People understand it very well. People also understand increasingly that the proposed easy technofix solutions that are often proposed by industry are not that reliable and are more inclined to benefit those corporations by keeping business as usual practices. On the other hand, I don't see a very fundamental change in the way decisions are made at the EU level. There has been a change in the sense that this commission has made some really positive proposals under the EU Found Folk strategy that really shows an awareness of the problem of, for instance, pesticide use. However, when it comes to the nitty gritty and to the actual policy proposal, it shows it is shown that uh, corporate lobbying at the EU and the national level really will pull every trick on their sleeve in order to, you know, abusing the COVID crisis, abusing the Ukraine crisis having really direct connection to agriculture ministers and ministries, really pulling that all together in order to delay the whole project. And of course, it's completely contradictory because it's precisely now that we need to accelerate and actually address the crisis for the sake of the long-term future, but it's being twisted the other way around. So there's no fundamental change in the way decisions are being made, nor in the power balance. It is just getting maybe more pronounced and, and more visible and more dramatic in its outcomes. The level of, of mobilization and organization that happened at the more early days of the EU is, is not happening right now. It's more happening at the, at the national level. So I think that there's not enough pressure on EU politicians and on the EU bureaucracy to, to actually change. So that's an important call to action then from your end. Yes, of course. And that is one of our big challenges that we produce all this analysis. We try to be active in coalitions, but we are only a small organization and we can not bring our messages in all the languages of the EU into the national media and into the, the movements at the same time. We, we definitely need a lot more groups to translate those messages and to be paying attention. And so that is where we really need the collaboration with local groups and people and at the same time, I completely understand that people that are active locally are completely absorbed by the current challenges uh, like cost of living crisis, etc. And don't, do not have the time or resources to spend on, on decisions that are that are made on a, on a higher level. So this is something and there are in, in many countries, there is a lot of repression against civil society activist groups. So the situation is getting more difficult in some countries to be active or to find the resources to be active. Yeah. And luckily, we also have some funders listening <laughs> to this show. So I guess that is also a call to action for those who want to fund important social justice work to think about. And I'm finding it so important, this topic, because working across different issues, not only food and agriculture, but also climate and other social justice related issues, corporate capture and corporate power is really something that a lot of activists are struggling with. And I think another thing that would be really great is, is this sharing of lessons between groups on how to deal with it. And that's also why I really appreciate speaking to you today, uh, because there's a lot of experience within your organization and the work that you do that is, of course, in a European context, but also relevant to others to consider 
what mechanisms are there for us to explore at our national or regional level? How can we team up across borders and across sectors to expose the risks that corporate power brings? And I was happy to see a recent report by IPES, the International Panel of Experts on, on Sustainable Food Systems as well, who really clearly lay out this problem. And, and having had so many conversations myself with policymakers who do not always share that view, or they might sometimes feel they don't even have the power to address it themselves. I think we're living in an important moment to really try to understand what's happening and how we can respond. CEO is part of a, a network of national observatories that are present in, in several countries like France and Germany and Czech Republic and doing similar work. We also liaise with progressive municipalities like uh, Barcelona, Amsterdam, who have a network. And we're trying to support them by informing them about actually where the EU is impeding them to take their own uh, progressive measures and trying to counter those. It's really important to have these channels open between the national level and the EU level. Thank you for that. We're going to close off. You're in the midst of all these campaigns. I'm just curious, do you find the time to kind of sit and reflect on these questions and, and kind of the context you're operating in your daily work? Because that's something I always found very challenging when I was campaigning. That is very challenging and we hardly find the time. Of course, we do build in moments within coalitions, but also within my organization to sit and reflect and discuss. And um, the fact that CEO works on various themes is actually helpful in that respect because I get a view on what is happening in other fields and what the similarities are. And that is actually an, uh, an important reflection to not get caught up too much into, into one issue. Yeah, it's very challenging. And usually we're just running from one place to the other and trying to get our reports finished. So there's very little time for reflection. We have to build in those moments, especially for exchange, because I believe very much in collective intelligence that it's not one group or one person that can come up with a brilliant idea and, and execute it. I think that it's really about building and exchanging in order to get to effective strategies and effective uh, solutions. Thank you so much, Nina. Thank you for that. Those are great closing remarks also to this episode, because this podcast is also about making sure that we hear from each other. And uh, I would like to thank you for sharing some of your personal motivations, your analysis of the system, and the ways in which you're working and the challenges that you're sitting with so that also others can maybe connect if they want to. I would definitely recommend people also to look at the resources of this episode to learn more about the work that you're doing and maybe to get in touch to get that exchange going where it's not yet there. As we said, if we want to create more just an equal world, we definitely have to look at the power structures that are there. And that's a big job to do. And we can only do it together. So um, thank you again for your time and your wisdoms. You're welcome. Thank you for listening to today's episode. We hope you gained some new insights and ideas for tackling inequalities. We sure did, even when it can feel like we are facing Goliath. If you enjoyed the conversation, please subscribe, leave a review and spread the word so more people can join. This really, really helps us. Check out the resource in the show notes. And of course, watch this space for more inspiring episodes coming up. Ciao!